when listening to a preacher, author, or theologian, it is important to remember that if you contain multitudes, it is because God contained multitudes first. For instance, any preacher or author who says to be a Christian is to be a contemplative, not an activist, or to be a Christian is to be an activist, not a contemplative, or to be a sacramental Christian is to be neither a contemplative nor an activist, is not deserving of our time or attention. In matters of theology, in relationships, and love, nuance is your friend. Of course, every church has its share of people who wake up and pray for two hours every morning and its share of members who'd much rather spend all their time staffing a soup kitchen. Contemplation or prayer and action are inseparable. What good is it to be baptized if I don't enjoy swimming in the waters of baptism? What good is acting in the name of God if I do not pray? What good is praying in the name of God if I do not act? It is not in our best interest to pit sacraments like baptism and communion against practices like contemplation and action. These questions were raised anew for me when I came across a quote by Mark Oakley, a priest friend in the Church of England. He weds sacramentality, action, and contemplation in a sermon about the baptism of Christ, get this, at a prayer service commemorating the 50th anniversary of the decriminalization of homosexuality in the United Kingdom. So this is in 2017, just four years ago. So 54 years ago. And this is what Mark says. This is a long quote, so settle in. Quote, Jesus gets pushed under the surface. You can only hear your own heart beating. And all the noise from the shore, the opinions, the dogmas, the criticisms, and empty chatter all get drowned out. It's just him for a second or two, and then pulled out, he takes a deep breath of fresh air. We are told that he then hears a voice, not from the shore, but from heaven. This is the one voice that matters, and it tells him, you are mine, I love you, you make me happy. Jesus then goes into the wilderness where all the empty voices come back at him, tempting and torturing his mind, trying to simmer him down out of the dignity he discovered by the water. In that desert, he is learning to live up to the voice that matters and not live down to the ones that don't, end quote. 
the Sunday morning congregations did not get that whole quote, but you got the whole quote. (laughs) Notice that the waters of the Jordan River become a staging ground, not only for Jesus's baptism, but offers him the silence and community he needed to enter the wilderness. So Luke 3, Jesus is baptized. Luke 4, the spirit leads him. And in the original language, the word leads is forced him into the wilderness. I imagine that when he was offered by Satan three different shortcuts to wealth, fame, and acclaim, Jesus could rely on that moment of contemplation experienced in his baptism when he was shoved under the surface of the water. Said another way, the baptism of Jesus is a touchstone, a centering experience out of which Jesus lives when he is forced to face down the allure of wealth, fame, and acclaim. Baptism, like the other sacraments of the church, is powerful because it pulls us out of our heads into our bodies. I watch you do it every time you enter this church. You place your hands in the stoops of holy water and make the sign of the cross over your body. When you do that, you are saying, Christ's baptism is my baptism. And everything God says about Jesus in the River Jordan is what God says about me. Everything God says about Jesus in the River Jordan is what God says about you. I belong to God. God loves me and God delights over me. It is from that place of belovedness that the baptized person, the Christian person, can contemplate, can pray. And it is from prayer that the baptized person can act in the workplace, at home, in the grocery store, at the car dealership and in the doctor's office as a person who is loved and treasured by God beyond measure. And it is through sacramental contemplative action that the people of God are enabled to bear the good news of Christ's unconditional love in his incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection. Archbishop Desmond Tutu and other active contemplatives and contemplative activists operate from this touchstone. God's love and initiative in holy baptism sustains them to live lives of contemplation and action. After being installed as Archbishop of Cape Town and Primate of the Anglican Church of Southern Africa, a typical day in Archbishop Tutu's life consisted of the following. And please brace yourself because this is actually 
alarming and compelling at the same time. And this is just the parts of his day that included prayer. Archbishop Tutu would rise at 4 a.m. for personal prayers, either on his knees, and this is in the authorized biography of Archbishop Tutu by John Allen. He would rise at 4 a.m. for personal prayers on his knees or crouched alongside his bed, curled up like a fetus. Then there would be devotional reading at 6 a.m., morning prayer with his clergy staff at 7.30 a.m., a celebration of Holy Eucharist at 8 a.m., 30 minutes of personal prayer at 1 p.m., and I really like this part that was followed by lunch and a nap, <laughs> according to the biography. His evenings then consisted of prayer with his clergy staff, personal prayer, and bedtime prayers. And this author says it was about six or seven hours a day of prayer for Archbishop Tutu. Dismantling white South Africa's unjust system of apartheid took six to seven hours of prayer a day. Dismantling American apartheid in the form of voting restrictions, housing discrimination, educational segregation, and underemployment among black Americans took prayer meetings, Bible studies, marching, the singing of freedom songs, and preaching forms of black Christian contemplation. And if systems of injustice are to be dismantled in this age, it will begin with prayer, by contemplation, by those practices that enable Jesus to resist shortcuts through the wilderness. Henry Nouwen has a wonderful book about the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And the argument he makes is that the greatest temptation was to take a shortcut through the wilderness. And Jesus' practices of prayer and fasting and silence and contemplation enabled him by God's power to resist that temptation. There is power. And if you don't hear me say anything else, hear me say this. There is power in pausing before God and saying, tell me who I am, tell me whose I am, quiet the noise from the shore so I can hear your voice and so you, God, can change this world through me. Amen.